Have a seat if you would. Really good to see you. Welcome again. And uh, already been a, a great day. It's always exciting to see people get baptized. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little jealous. If, if I had Greg's accent, it would instantaneously improve my preaching by about 50%, right? You would love to listen to me if I had Greg's I, You could read the phone book with that accent. And I think people would get saved. That's pretty awesome. Um, all right, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 1. We're in, in the last few verses uh, of it. We've been walking through the book of Philippians in a series we're calling Joy Invincible. And I want to try to kind of tie together this morning just kind of some of the things that we've been looking at and, and look at what Paul says here in the last four verses. <clears throat> I remember a time when I was in college and uh, when I started, kind of started walking with the Lord, kind of stopped running from Him and running from the call uh, to preach. And uh, I got convicted about some of the music that I was listening to. And, and, I, and I got rid of some of my albums. Remember those like vinyl things, you know, <laughs> for Spotify kids. Uh, but uh, I, I got rid of some of them. And, and, and this, you know, message isn't about, like, what music you shouldn't, shouldn't listen to. But, you know, I just felt like some of it wasn't honoring the Lord and uh, was convicted about it. And I remember my brother just, like, thinking that was the weirdest thing he had ever seen and him kind of pushing back, like, why are you getting rid of this good music? And, you know, since then, there, there's been many times, you know, uh, when we went to Maryland, we moved there to, to pastor a church. So people were like, why would you go to Maryland? When we came back here to, to plant True Life, people were like, why would you come back here and start a church where there's so many churches? When I've gone to Honduras all these times, some people are like, you know, why go to a place like that? And if you're trying to follow Jesus, you've experienced some of those same kind of questions, right? You know what I'm talking about, some pushback, maybe a little opposition, a little bit like, you know, you're nuts, what are you thinking, why are you doing this, that kind of thing. And, of course, that's mild. You know, there's many, many Christians around the world that, I mean, if they had that kind of pushback, they'd think it's awesome because their pushback is, hey, we're going to kill you if you don't recant your faith. And so we're coming to a part of Philippians where Paul begins to talk about some opposition that the church at Philippi was facing. But, you know, as we've walked through this first chapter, and uh, Pastor Julio just did an awesome job of unpacking verses 19 through 26 last week, and, you know, we, we saw in there, where the, you know, the verse where, you know, verses 20 and 21, for me to uh, live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said that, you know, the goal of my life is that Christ would be magnified, that, that he would be exalted, that he would be glorified. And, you know, we call this series Joy Invincible, but really, the more I've studied uh, Philippians over the last few weeks, um, I've just more and more come to the conviction that really what's at the center of what Paul is writing here is the Lord Jesus. Joy is a byproduct of that. But the focus here is about Jesus. And we're called to make Jesus the focus of our lives. We're called to live, to magnify him. And I've really been challenged by you know, verses 20 and 21. But here's the thing that we all have to decide, I think. Who or what are we going to live for? What's going to guide? What's going to control our lives? 
what's our life really about? And you may be here and, not, and, and you're not a Christian and maybe you'd have some of those same kind of questions for people. Why are you doing this? Why do you talk about Jesus? Why do you uh, make changes for him? Why would your life be about him? And really, the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's at the heart of the passage that we're going to read. And uh, the, go- the word gospel means good news. And the Bible tells us that the good news is, is the fact that even though we have sinned, that we've rebelled against God. That God loved us so much that his son, Jesus, left heaven and, and, and came to earth. That he divested himself of his heavenly glory and he came as a man and he humbled himself. This is Philippians chapter 2, all the way uh, to death on the cross. But then he rose from the dead and now God has exalted him. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his name is higher and greater than every other name. And so because of that, I mean, people who believe that say that Jesus is my life and live to magnify him, to worship him, to glorify him. Do you realize that everybody's a worshiper? Everybody worships something. You may be an atheist, but you're worshiping something. It's only a question of who or what are we going to worship because really whatever we give glory and devotion and and, and sacrifice for, whatever is the most important thing in our life, whatever the thing is that we're most devoted to, on some level, that's what we're worshiping. And so what are we going to worship? What are we going to live for? What is our life going to be uh, about? And so what we're going to read in this text today, what Paul is saying to us in the book of Philippians, is that Jesus is the one who's worthy of our worship. He's the one who's worthy of being magnified, of being glorified. He is our life. He is the one that our life is to be about. And so if you're still on the fence with that, if you're still wrestling with that, I want to challenge you today and encourage you today to think about who Jesus is and what his claims are and how you should respond to that. But if you would say you are a Christian today, I hope that you're challenged by God's word. Just like I said, I've been challenged as I've studied this, that more and more that Christ would be my life, that more and more he would be magnified in me, that I would be more surrendered uh, to him. So let's read in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I'm going to try to unpack it this morning. And again, I want to read this in light of what we looked at last week in verses 20 and 21 about Christ being magnified, about our life being Jesus. But verse 27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And remember, in the context of what we read last week, Paul's like, you know, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. But he said, it's better for you if God keeps me alive. But he said, he's saying here, either way, what I want to know is that you're living a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says um, in, in verse 28, he says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, so there's some opposition that's arisen, 
which is to them a proof of perdition, which means eternal damnation, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, I've never seen that verse on a figurine or a coffee mug or a poster at the Christian bookstore. But that's what it says. It says, having the same conflict, it's the word that we got our word agony from, which you saw in me and now here is in me. And so I think the big idea here is that Jesus is worthy of us glorifying him with our lives even in the face of opposition. Jesus is worthy of us glorifying him with our lives, even in the way, even in the face of opposition. And I think this text gives us three ways that we can do that. So here's the first, at the beginning of verse 27. We glorify Jesus in the face of opposition by living gospel-empowered conduct. We glorify Jesus in the face of opposition by gospel-empowered conduct. The, the first line here says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's a couple of words here that I think we need to unpack if we're going to understand what Paul is saying to us. So the word conduct is an interesting word. It's not the normal word that's used in translated conduct in the New Testament, but it's actually the Greek word from which we get English words like politic or political from. And really, in, in, in the context of just a generic usage, it, it really normally referred to the fulfillment of duties as a member of a body or a citizen of a city. And so, like if you were a citizen of a Roman city, Roman colony, there were certain expectations that you were expected, in a certain way you were expected to live. But Paul takes this word, and he uses it spiritually here, and I think Kenneth Weiss captures the meaning of it well when he says this. He says, it teaches us that Christians are citizens of heaven, having a heavenly origin and a heavenly destiny with the responsibility of living a heavenly life on this earth in the midst of ungodly people and surroundings, telling sinners of a Savior in heaven who will save them from their sins if they but trust Him. They are taught that obedience to the ethics of the Pauline epistles is not merely obedience to ethics as such, but this is important, it involves a duty which they are responsible to discharge as citizens of a heavenly kingdom and subjects of a heavenly king. In other words, he's saying that what we do, the way we live, is not just to follow a set of rules. It's because we're citizens of the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And that we're to conduct our lives based on that. But there's another word here that we need to understand, and I'll try to put these two things together. It's the word worthy. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let, let the way that you live be worthy of the fact that Jesus died for you. Let the way that you live be worthy of the fact that the risen Christ lives in you, and so his resurrection power is in us. Now, the word worthy is an interesting word. 
Um, some of you are new to True Life. Some of you have been around two or three years would know that we spent, I think it was 54 weeks walking through the book of Ephesians. And, <laughs> okay, some of you remember, right? Uh, chuckles here and there. But uh, Ephesians 4.1 says this. He said, Paul wrote, I, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's the same word, worthy. But in the context here, the word therefore is really important because it connects back to everything that he's already said in the first three chapters of Ephesians about what God has done for us in Christ. And the fact that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we're saved by grace, that we're reconciled to God and brought together in one body, and and all of these things. And when we went through this, we kind of framed the the second half of the book of Ephesians with this phrase. Uh, We can live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And, and the idea of worthy in Ephesians 4.1 and in Philippians 1.27 is basically kind of a leveling kind of thing. That our conduct would match our profession. That the way we live would match the position of who we are in Christ. Let us give you just a, maybe a simple analogy. Think about a seesaw. You know, a seesaw goes up and down, and uh, you know you can be like this, you can be like this, you can be level. So just look at these little graphics for a second. So the idea, you know, our, our position, you know, in Christ, we're seated in the heavenly places, we're blessed with every, every spiritual blessing. We have, you know, this great position. But if our practice is down here, if we're not living up to it. Basically, at that point, we're living like a hypocrite. And so we're not living worthy. Our conduct isn't worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the idea would be then uh, to strive for our practice to match up to our position. Now, the reality, though, is that doesn't picture anything on the earth. That picture's heaven. That picture's glorification. We're not going to arrive until then. You know, we're not going to be perfected until then. We're always going to fall uh, short somewhat, even if we're really trying to walk with the Lord on this earth. And that's why Philippians 1.6 is good news, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so hopefully what is happening in our lives is that more and more we're growing, where we're at least getting closer and closer to our practice matching up to our position, and that's what it means to conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Newton, the the writer of Amazing Grace, who was a slave trader before he was converted to Christ, said this, he said, I'm not the man I ought to be, I'm not the man I wish to be, and I'm not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man that I used to be. And and, and I think that captures the flavor of what Paul is saying here, that more and more we're growing into the likeness of Christ, that our practice is matching up with our position, that our conduct is worthy of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. We say, how can that be true in my life? 
We live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. In other words, we're saved by the gospel, but we're changed, we're sanctified, we grow spiritually by the gospel as well. One of my favorite quotes is by J.D. Greer. He says, most evangelicals see the gospel as merely the entry right into Christianity, the diving board into the pool. But the gospel is both the diving board and the pool. The gospel is everything. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Paul's saying the gospel empowers us to, to, to live out our faith. Listen, on the cross, Jesus was our substitute. But the Bible also teaches us in many places in the New Testament that on the cross we were identified with Christ and on the cross we died with him. In his resurrection we were raised again to walk in the newness of life. That's what was just pictured uh, by uh, baptism. And so we're not living the Christian life in our own strength and our own resources. It's Christ in us. It's Christ living through us. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we live the Christian life. It's Christ living in and, and, and through us. He died not to set us free to sin, but to set us free from sin. And if we're going to glorify Jesus, it comes from seeking to honor him with our conduct, from confessing our sins, repenting of our sins when we don't do that. And it matters for our witness in the world. It matters. You know, the world is watching us. There's opposition in the world. The world is looking for an excuse to write off Jesus, and often the world finds it in us. But hopefully when people look at us, they see Jesus. I want to share just a little bit of an article with you to illustrate this. Um, it was written by actually, actually by Larry Flint, who was the publisher of Hustler Magazine. And it's about Jerry Falwell. And, and it says this. He says, when I heard that Jerry Falwell Jr. had resigned the presidency of Liberty University in disgrace, it struck me as the belated ending to a long personal saga with the Falwell clan and an essential footnote to the role of religion and free speech in America. For those familiar with ancient history, it began in the 1970s, soon after I started publishing Hustler. Jerry Falwell Sr., then head of the Moral Majority Christian Interest Group, sued me for libel and the, quote, intentional infliction of, emo of emotional distress over a parody of him that was published in that magazine, but that I'm not going to dignify by reading that part of the article. So, so he says, the legal battle lasted five years, from 1983 to 1988, including three decisions against me in federal courts. Finally, I was vindicated by the Supreme Court in, in a unanimous decision written by conservative Chief Justice William Rehnquist. But listen to this. He says, ironically, Falwell Sr. and I became friends later. We enjoyed many cordial visits, participated in debates across the country, and even exchanged Christmas cards. I have to concede that his friendship with me proves that, for the most part, he was practicing an essential tenet of his faith, forgiveness, and was a sincere Christian. Which is more than can be said 
for many of his fellow televangelists. And he names some of them. And then he names his son, you know, who resigned in disgrace and, and scandal that I won't get into the details of, as president of Liberty University. The world is watching us. The world is opposing us. Are we pointing them to Jesus or are we pointing them away from Jesus? Are we living to glorify Christ? Are we living for ourselves? Listen, if we're going to live a life that magnifies Christ and is a good witness to a world opposing the gospel, it's going to come from us living out of the gospel. Gospel empowered conduct, not legalism, not us trying to do it ourselves. It's Christ living in us. But number two, I want us to see here that we glorify Jesus in the face of opposition by gospel centered unity. We glorify Jesus in the face of opposition by gospel centered unity. Unity is one of the recurring things, themes to the book of Philippians. And it's so important right now. And listen, it makes all the sense in the world why our world would be divided right now. It makes all the sense in the world why our nation would be divided right now. Listen, the Bible says, two be not agreed, how can they walk together? If you have two diametrically opposed worldviews, it's going to be hard for you to sing hands, uh, hold hands and sing kumbaya and agree about everything. That's just reality. But Christians with the same Lord, the same Holy Spirit, the same Bible, I don't think it should be as hard as it apparently is For us to live together in unity. Look at what he goes on to say in in, in the text again. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Notice this, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. You see, stand fast is defensive. Strive together is offensive in the sense of uh, not being offensive, but going on the offense with the gospel to try to reach the world. But he says, as we do this, as we stand together, as we strive together, don't be afraid of our adversaries. The word terrified here, the, the word picture is a horse being startled and jumping and maybe throwing its rider. Probably in your family, you have a jumpy person, right? There's somebody in your family that just scares easily, right? I would never intentionally try to scare my wife because I don't have to try to scare her. And she would probably kill me if I actually tried to do it on on purpose. Uh, I mean, I can walk through the house and she jumps. She squeals. I can be in a room and, um, you know, she doesn't know I'm there. And every once in a blue moon, I don't know if she forgets that I'm there, but she'll roll over in bed and look at me and get startled, which (laughs) gives me a, a little bit of a complex. And so Paul is saying to us here spiritually, don't be like that. Don't be jumpy. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Stand strong. But he says we've got to do it together. So stand fast is a military term. And you know, the Bible teaches us that we're 
at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I think as Christians, we forget a lot of times and think we're at war with each other. He says to stand fast. Jesus prayed that, that we would be one. You know, in ancient days, they had these military formations called phalanxes where they were basically just like locked together. And as long as everybody stood firm, it was almost impossible to penetrate. But if one person broke rank, the whole thing could fall apart. We've got to stand together. But he says we're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Again, I think he's, he's speaking of sharing the gospel. But when he says here, notice he says, the faith of the gospel. You know, when we think of faith, we usually think of it in a verb sense of like, you know, trusting or believing. But this is actually one of over 30 instances in the New Testament where it's used as a noun with the definite article the in front of it. And, and this is important. The Bible says in, in Jude 3, Jude says, you know, I, I wrote to you desiring, uh, to, to, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I ended up writing to you, exhorting you to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not our faith, it's not a faith that we invented. It didn't come from us. It came down from God. There's the faith, the faith of the gospel. There are primary, first-order doctrines of the gospel of the nature of God. You know, the, the Trinity, the full deity, the full humanity of Christ, the, the virgin birth, uh, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection, the literal second coming of Christ, salvation by Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, things like that that are absolutely non-negotiable that every Christian will agree on because if you don't believe those things, you're not actually a Christian. But the Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 14 there's what it terms as disputable things. There's gray areas. There's secondary matters. There's matters of opinion. You know, I think a verse in this day and time that we probably all need to take to heart is the verse that says, don't be wise in your own opinion. You see, here's the thing I think we need to remember. Ultimately, we're on Team Jesus together, and that's the team that matters. Not Team Calvinism or Team Arminianism. Not, uh, not Team Premillennial or Team Postmillennial. Not Team Trump or Team Biden. Not Team Progressive or Team Conservative. Not Team Mask or Team No Mask. Not Team Vaccine or Team No Vaccine. Listen, those things are, are, are important. And we can have opinions about those things. And we can discuss those things. We can even debate those things. But we're not to divide over those kind of things. We're to unite in Christ around the faith of the gospel to stand fast together against a world that wants to tear down the faith and not just stand fast on the defensive, but go on the offensive with the gospel to share the message of Christ with the world around us. And when we get distracted by and when we divide over, we fight over these kind of secondary matters, we ruin our witness to the world. I mean, how many people do you talk to that say, well, I don't want to be a Christian. All Christians do is fight. Does that glorify Jesus? Um, 
our son Jay, who's 26 now, you know, he grew up playing basketball. And, I mean, he, was a, he wasn't a great basketball player. He was a good basketball player. And, um, he, he went to elementary school at Alpha. He went to high school at Morristown West. But when he was in middle school, he was at Cornerstone at Christian Academy. And this was when Cornerstone had, had first started. And, uh, you know, they started a basketball team, and, which was cool. But the only problem was he was the only person who had ever compl- played competitive basketball before. And they put together a team, and, you know, one or two of the guys were good athletes, but they had never played basketball before, so that put a lot on him. Well, they played a game where, and if you've ever played sports, you know, just every once in a while you get in that zone where everything goes right. And he had one of those games. And they were playing a team somewhere up in the Tri-Cities. And the way this team, the school structured, I guess, they were like junior high, 7th through ninth, instead of middle school, 6th through 8th. But they told us they wouldn't play their high schoolers. They told us they wouldn't play their freshmen. Except that we were beating them at halftime. And uh, they decided to play uh, their ninth graders during the third quarter. And they kind of blew us out then. And they ended up winning the game. But despite the fact that one quarter didn't go well, and despite the fact that uh, middle school games are like six or seven minutes quarters, Jay scored 34 points that night. Just one of those nights where he couldn't miss. If they hadn't played their high schoolers, I think he would have probably gone for over 40. It was just one of those nights. So you'd think his team would be happy about that. But when they were practicing after this, instead of being happy, they were apparently jealous because his teammates said to him, this next game, we're not going to pass the ball to you. And in fact, when, you, when you're dribbling the ball, we're going to steal the ball from you. <laughs> and you understand when Christians fight and divide, it's like stealing the ball from your own teammate. We've, lost completely, uh, we've completely lost sight of the point of the whole thing. We've lost sight of who our enemy actually is. We've lost sight of who is on our team. We've lost sight of what this is all about. We've lost sight of who we're actually living for. And so if we're going to glorify, magnify Jesus, particularly in the face of opposition, it's going to come from gospel-empowered conduct. It's going to come from gospel-centered unity. But third, if we're going to glorify him in the face of opposition, our text tells us that it's going to come through gospel-motivated suffering. It's going to come through gospel-motivated suffering. In verse 29, he uses a word here. He says it's been granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, I don't know how many times I've read the book of Philippians. It's dozens, but I learned something this last week I never knew. The word, this is kind of crazy, but the word granted there is a form of, it comes from the root of one of the Greek words for grace. Now, this messes with our minds and how we think. But he's saying here that suffering, and he's not talking about suffering in general. There's different reasons why we suffer. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we suffer because of our sins. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins. Sometimes we suffer because uh, God is pruning us. Sometimes we suffer because God has a higher purpose of doing something uh, great through the suffering. But he's talking about here specifically suffering for the name of Christ. He says it's a grace. 
I don't know about you, but that's not in my normal realm of thinking to connect grace and suffering. So why would suffering be a grace? Well, I think the Bible gives us several reasons, but for, for time's sake, I'm just going to limit it to a couple that he shares in, in this passage of Scripture. You know, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 12 through 18 that God was using Paul's sufferings to encourage Christians to be more bold with the gospel and, and, and to, as an opportunity to share the message of the gospel with lost people that they wouldn't have normally had contact with. Suffering's a grace because God uses it for the advancement of the gospel. But specifically in these verses, he's telling us that suffering is a grace because it identifies who's a Christian and who's not. Look, look, look again at verse 28. He says, talking about the adversaries, he says, them being an adversary is a proof of perdition. They're headed to eternal damnation, but to you it's a proof of salvation that has come from God. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, you're changing, you're, you're changing character. You united stand in defense of the gospel. Your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. He says... You've been, it's been granted to you. You've been graced to suffer on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. He says in verse 30 that the conflict, the agony, uh, all this opposition that you've seen me experience, now you're going to experience it as well. You know, prosperity gospel preachers would say, Jesus is here to give you your best life now to make you ha healthy, happy, wealthy, wise. But the Bible says been granted to us not just to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Not to live life as a bed of roses, but to live life with opposition, to live life in conflict. Listen, if two things are going in the opposite directions, at some point they're going to collide. And if we're never experiencing any opposition, maybe we're not living differently enough, counter enough to the culture to ever collide with the culture. Maybe we're going along to get along. So again, the question is, what are we living for? Who are we living for? What is our life about? Is it about us or is it about Jesus? Is Jesus worthy of us trusting him? Is he worth following is he ultimately worth suffering for and what god is saying to us in his word i think is that the gospel says yes if jesus died for us Romans 12, 1, we're to offer our lives up to him as a living sacrifice. I, I, I'm not saying we go seeking suffering. I'm saying if we live as a sacrifice, probably some suffering is going to accompany that. Is Jesus worth it? Do we really believe the gospel? Do we really believe that he died for us, that he rose from the dead? Listen, nobody's going to die for a metaphorical resurrection. Nobody should walk across the street for a metaphorical resurrection. 
But if Jesus rose from the dead, the smartest thing that we could ever do is to commit our lives to him. Both in 1994 and in 2011, the city of Vancouver had major riots. You know what prompted the riots? The Vancouver hockey team lost game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, which is the the championship series in hockey. Millions of dollars of damage, hundreds of injuries, hundreds of arrests, because they lost a hockey game. One of my favorite preachers is Mark Clark, who's in Canada. They're multi-campus, but I think they, they originally planted in Vancouver. And I heard him talk about this, and then I looked up some of the video, and he's right. But he said, if you look at the video of it, the vast majority of the people involved in those riots were young, white, 20-something males. And he made the point, and I think he's right, that these were young men who didn't have any purpose. I mean, why else would you be so invested in a hockey game that this is what you get fired up about? What do you have to live for? Contrast that with this. One of the places in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest is in the country of Iran. But as, as, as has so often happened in the history of the church, the seedbed of the church has been the blood of the martyrs, to quote a church historian. There's been many people martyred there. In 1984, there was a man by the name of Mahdi Debaj who was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of, quote, apostasy for converting from Islam to Christianity. He was in prison for about 10 years, but then another pastor went to bat for him, so to speak, actually ended up being martyred too, shared about that this man was about to be executed. Uh, our nation got involved, and this man was freed. But... A few months later, and this happened with several people around that time, Mr. DeBodge was murdered. He was found in a park in Tehran. But as part of his defense, when he was being tried for all of this, this is what he said. He said, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person, in all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we say that? What's our life about? Is Christ our life? What are we living for? Who are we worshiping? Listen, if you're not a Christian, what are you living for? Is it worth living for? Is it worth dying for? Is it satisfying you now? Is it giving you hope for eternity? 
Listen, for those of us who are Christians, we're called to honor, to glorify Jesus with the way we live. So he calls us to repent of sin in our lives. We're, we're called to honor and glorify him by living in unity with other believers. Again, doesn't mean we all have to think the same way. We shouldn't all think the same way, but we should unite around the essentials. We should agree to disagree where we need to. We should love each other no matter what. And then we glorify him sometimes by suffering, by facing opposition, by being willing to follow him no matter what. Are you following Jesus? Are you living for him? Is your prayer that Christ would be magnified in your life? Or is your life about you? If we could, let's bow our heads and and close our eyes.